Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Church, good evening to our friends, guests, those of us online as well, joining us, Zoom and Facebook. Glad to have you with us as we continue on in this series in the midst of the turmoil, the chaos, all that we're dealing with. You know, it reminds me of a question I asked the church about a year and a half ago in our series from the book of Romans. I asked this question, how would you like to live in a world without the God that we find in the Bible? Some years ago, there was a publisher who put out a book, interestingly enough, with this idea, this very interesting title. It was called The Chance World. And it it described a world in which everything happened by chance, randomly. One day the sun would rise, another day it wouldn't. Or it might appear in the afternoon one day, might appear in the morning the next day. And the book described children born with one head, the other with 12 heads. Some had heads on their shoulders, others didn't. Some kids even had no shoulders. And if a child jumped in the air, it wasn't sure it might even come down. Maybe there was such a thing of gravity in that world, maybe there wasn't. And one day a man couldn't get off his chair. And another day he would just go right through the floor, underground because the force holding him down would be so strong. How would you like to live in a world like that? How would it be if we didn't have any idea whatsoever why you were born or why bad things happen to relatively good people or Christians even, God's people for that matter? I don't know about you, but I couldn't and I would not want to live in a world like that. I really wouldn't. So I rejoice tonight in the almighty, holy absolutely sovereign, loving, merciful, gracious God that we find in the Bible. Amen. And I have to tell you, you're never going to understand, much less appreciate this doctrine that we're going to go through tonight as we have this series on the absolute sovereignty of God. As the reformers of the faith did, and millions have for centuries, particularly how it applies to salvation, if you bring your own preconceived notions and preferences into it, which a lot of people do. It's human nature, both in and out of the church. So even though what I'm about to say may overwhelm, may shock some of you, I just think some of you, because you've heard it here before if you've spent any time with us, but something may cause something to swell up inside you that doesn't feel quite right. I'm going to ask you to withhold judgment on what you hear from this fallible preacher until you've listened to what God is saying most clearly in all of his word, which is his revelation to people, and that you give it a fair hearing and then see how you conclude. Meaning, like a good Berean, you go and you search the scriptures, as I have here, the ones I'll cite here and many more, and you meditate, you think hard on them and just follow wherever it takes you. And I think most of you, if you do, you're going to be able to trust in this doctrine and take comfort in it 
and watch, you're going to see your worship go to a whole nother level, I think, which is the intention of this series. So what the Lord Almighty here says in his word is that he is the decisive force in everything that happens on earth virtually. In fact, just one chapter of the Bible, the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, give you a sense of this, how it works in the most minute of details. And in your life, how relevant it is, God's sovereignty. Proverbs 16.1 says, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Meaning, basically, we make plans, and you should, nothing wrong with that, but the outcome in terms of the plans that's come out of your mouth are coming from the Lord. And in fact, verse 9 of that same proverb, that same chapter says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And in the Hebrew, that means he directs, he literally fixes your way in the midst of your plans. Now, you might say, Pastor, do you really think that's possible? That the Lord is sovereign and providential and directing the paths of my day-to-day -day life, even the smallest details? And I would answer that question by taking you to the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, when the Lord's trying to help people not to fear as so many are doing today, listen to what Jesus said. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? So God is directing in sparrows falling. Verse 30, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. For some of you out there, that's easier than others. You have fewer hairs. But that said, God is in the details. So you can choose to embrace that, or you can choose to kick the goads, as the Bible would say, on something like that. I, I take texts like that very seriously. I take them literally, which brings me personally awe, comfort, confidence, and courage to live life today, day to day, and to have hope every day. And that's why Romans 828 is the favorite verse of so many Christians, including myself, where God is working all things together for the good of his people, right? So my hope and prayer has been in this series, which is coming at the sunset of one of the most difficult years, any one of us can remember, the year 2020, the year of COVID and chaos, and every which way, everything else, I'm hoping this has been doing the same for you, this series, and I think... That's why these scriptures are here for us. Now already, somebody here may be thinking, but pastor, I thought, I thought this was a message about the sovereignty of God over salvation. Yes, but we've arrived here at this point already having established that he's sovereign over the nations. That includes elections, presidential election, your health, your wealth. That's relevant to your life, right? Well, if you understand he's sovereign over all that and the future, which we'll close the series with next time, what would make any of us think salvation would be an exception to that rule? You're going to see in our text here, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, so you get this in the back of your mind, Barnabas was called the encourager. They're preaching the gospel in their first missionary journey in a place called Pisidian Antioch, which today would be known as 
modern-day Turkey. And there's a turning point here in church history because for the first time, the gospel is leaving the Holy Land of Israel, and it's going out, Asia Minor, out to the ends of the earth, as it talked about in Acts 1, okay? And where they would almost always start, Paul and Barnabas, is with the Jews. They would go on the Sabbath day to the synagogue, as per the gospel promise, and they would start preaching the good news. And some that heard it believed the message about Christ, and many others didn't. And the preaching, this preaching was very divisive. What a surprise. Riots would break out sometimes, and they'd be arrested even. They were in danger of that for doing their ministry. If you go up a few verses in the text, in verse 44 and 45, you get the idea. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him, mocking him. And Paul came back with a massive statement to, the, you know, to that, to the effect of, Jews, you've had your shot with this gospel message and exclusively, and you hate it, and you're rejecting it. And now guess what? It's going to the Gentiles. It's going to the pagans, those folks you don't particularly like. And to that statement, what you're going to find in the text is there's going to come a reaction coming from the root of what's been preached, and then the result of all of this being spread throughout the region. Let's look at the reaction here. Let's look at the beginning in the middle of verse 48 again. And when the Gentiles heard this, that this is the message, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Stop right there. There's the reaction. Something happened in their eyes and their ears and their hearts and their minds. Happened to a number of listeners. And when they heard the message, it says in the Greek, they began rejoicing gladly, very gladly, exceedingly, overjoyed, okay? In fact, they started to give glory. They honored the Lord right there. They praised him, probably began worshiping him on the spot for what's happening in the midst of them. First reason probably was because, hey, they're part of this crowd. Hey, the, the gospel's finally coming to us, the Gentiles, which is pretty cool. And then, you know, they understood it was no longer a Hebrew thing. And maybe how many of you had a similar reaction to that the day you were saved? Do you remember your reaction? And you might have praised the Lord and started worshiping and so forth. And then on the other hand, you know this. You know plenty of people amongst your loved ones, coworkers, friends, whatever, that they've read or heard the gospel and nothing happens. There's no rejoicing, there's no praising, or anything like that. They may be atheists, they may be agnostics, or from another cult or another religion, whatever, and nothing happens right away, if at all. And if you think about it, you start to wonder, well, why? I, I got it. I got saved, and I'm rejoicing, and they don't. And then you might remember, this might make sense because some people, I would say many people, are spiritually deaf, dead, dumb, and blind. And you think that might sound harsh, but in essence, that's what the Bible says about the lost. When Paul wrote the Ephesian church, he reminded him of that, them of that, what they were before Christ. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 2. Turn to or mark Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter 2, in your Bibles. 
and listen to the first three verses. Now, Paul is speaking here in a past tense. He's writing to a Christian church about what they were. And you were dead, verse 1, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work, now at work in who? The sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and listen to this, and were by nature children of wrath, God's holy anger, like the rest of mankind. That's a universal statement, all right? In Romans 3, Paul quotes the Old Testament and says, none seeks after God, no one. And then he put it this way in chapter 8 of that book, for the mind that is set on the flesh, humanity, is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, that means those people that are carnal, unredeemed, they cannot please God. It's not like they are not sure about pleasing God. They cannot please God. The idea, folks, so you get it from the get-go, unbelievers will not believe because they cannot believe in their unredeemed state. No one can. You couldn't. I couldn't. Until something happened. Because left to ourselves, we will not come to Christ unless God does something first. He has to change our condition so we can believe. I call it spiritual heart surgery. He has to do some heart surgery. And the Jewish prophets knew that. Ezekiel and Jeremiah both said there would be a time when the church was born, the Holy Spirit came on new believers, and the heart of stone would turn to flesh. Stone is an inanimate object. It's dead. Flesh is flesh. That which breathes is living, right? So this is a critically important doctrine to remember tonight and got me thinking about this many years ago where this all starts, which is the total inability of mankind to save himself, to revive himself, to give him or herself new life. In fact, Jesus told Nicodemus that, in other words, when he told him, you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God, right? John 3. He went on to say that you can't do that. You can't do that any more than you can cause your own physical birth. How many of you had something to do with your being born from the womb? Anybody at all? No, I didn't think so. I didn't either. I had nothing to do with my physical birth, and you didn't either. Well, that's the analogy. You don't have anything to do with your spiritual birth virtually either. That's why Jesus is using the analogy with Nicodemus, which is why Nicodemus was blown away. And speaking of blown away, it's where the Lord said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you know not where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit. So that's a metaphor symbolizing the Holy Spirit works like the wind, and he comes upon people when and where he wishes. And that's speaking to God's sovereignty and salvation. Right? This is why the Apostle Peter wrote in his first letter that God, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. You didn't. He caused us to be born again. In Acts 16, the missionary journey went to Macedonia, 
there you get another example of this new birth or what we've said before, we've used the word regeneration. You're familiar with that word? Regeneration just means bringing life from where there was none, where there was death. If you flip a page or so in your Bible from the text in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, another similar situation. One who heard us, this is preaching, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Stop right there. That means she was a Jewish proselyte. She was a pagan that had been worshiping the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, with the Jews. And then it says, the Lord, listen, note this, opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So if you're tracking with me so far, you should be getting the idea already that it is God who is sovereign over salvation. You can already get it because he has to initiate it. He has to, since man cannot, because man is spiritually dead, just like Lydia, or when Jesus resurrected Lazarus. Remember in John 11, his good friend is in the grave. He's dead, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. He wakes up. He hears the call. He comes out. Well, that's how it works in salvation. The Holy Spirit says, come forth to you by name, and you answer the call. You come forth. Very similar. He calls. The call is answered. New life begins. But we all want to know here how this happens and why, which I get. So let's go to the root here. Go back in the text in the middle of verse 48. Because you heard, the, you know, they heard the message. They're rejoicing. They're glorifying the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You see the antecedent. First comes appointed, then believed. Believed, we've done. We do. That means you trust, you're persuaded by faith to believe in Jesus. Absolutely true. Always true. And the whoever, the many that were appointed, is who we call the elect. The elect is the real born-again church of Jesus Christ. What does this word appointed mean? Very simple. In the original Greek language, the emphasis is on something that's been predetermined. Predestined would be another synonym that's familiar. The New Living Translation is modern, renders it as chosen. The King James has it as ordained, which is a little closer to the original language. That synonym to be ordained is like ordered. In fact, the word has the idea, you know, salvation starts with God. It really means it's a decision made ahead of time. It can be translated with the idea of like an event being prearranged, like you put something on your calendar that's going to get done. In fact, this is interesting. The same word was translated in Romans 13, 1, talking about government, that the governing authorities were instituted by God. Same idea as ordained. Makes sense, right? In the, we are in the process, or were in the process a couple of weeks ago of doing what? We were trying to elect or choose a president, right? The difference is God knows whom he's choosing and electing, and he knows in advance, and we don't yet know who this person is that's been elected. And then another commentator translated the word ordained or appointed as enrolled. You've heard that when somebody signs up for school and they're enrolled? Well, that makes a lot of sense because you think about the fact that you are enrolled in God's book of life. 
the Lamb's Book of Life. So sovereign grace, the idea is sovereign grace was planned in advance. And I'm going to give you a great supporting scripture. Again, I want to bathe as much of this message in scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. And this is where Paul is indicating to the church how the church came about, how the church was put together by God and when. It says Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us, there's that word for election, in him before, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Right there, you get a big chunk of the what and the why with respect to salvation. And then Paul put it this way in his second letter to Timothy. We, we touched on this in our last series. God, it says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works or because of, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, listen, before the ages began. So you see when this all happened, before the ages began, before the foundation of the world. So now you're going to get a good idea of what theologians call unconditional election, meaning that God predestined or appointed you who are in Christ from eternity past, and then he called you or elected you at a given point in time to be saved without any preconditions on your part. It wasn't based on who you are or what you've done, and it wasn't based on how you would respond to God later. No. Paul illustrated the truth of this, by the way, with a history of two twin brothers. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 9, Romans, the book of Romans chapter 9. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau, twin brothers? Okay, chapter 9, by the way, of Romans is probably the most definitive chapter in all of the New Testament coming out of the end of chapter 8 on this situation, this doctrine. And what you find here is this, Romans chapter 9, pick it up in the middle of verse 10, talking about Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Why is that significant? If you're not Jewish, you might not know. Esau technically was the eldest of the twins. He came out first. So traditionally, according to Jewish birthright, he would get the blessing. But God turns the tables on the Jews and everyone else is going to know about the story. Intending to display his sovereign grace and election, he appoints instead, he appointed instead from eternity past, Jacob to get the blessing and become the next patriarch. He was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's a picture of what Paul is writing Timothy about sovereign, sovereignty and salvation, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And Jesus acknowledged this, that the Father in heaven gave him from eternity past believers that were appointed 
okay, as a church for him to love and rule and reign over. I want you to look at the Gospel of John in the sixth chapter, very revealing chapter. The Lord has fed the thousands. He's had some really tough, hard things to say. People are kind of confused. Some are following. Some are peeling off. And I'll just give you the beginning phrases of three verses very close to one another. John 6, 37, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. It's a guarantee. Verse 39, first phrase, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. And then if you go down to verse 44, the first phrase is, no one, no one means no one, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. A better translation for the word draws is compels from the original language. And then to cap all that off, after a multitude of fans heard his teaching, they took off, leaving this small number of smaller number of followers, disciples behind. The Lord Jesus said this in the same chapter, verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to unless it is granted him by the Father. Must be granted by the Father. To me, that sounds pretty conclusive. But there's another place where the sovereign grace of the Lord is laid out pretty clearly in the links of what we call, theologians call the golden chain of salvation. Look at Romans 8, the very end of the chapter, towards the end of the chapter, verses 29 and 30, right? You get that great promise in verse 28. And you'll remember we went through this a while back. Paul writes, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Foreknew. Foreknew means that Lord, the Lord had a love relationship. He had an intimate knowledge of you as one of his own before eternity passed. Before that, you were predestined or appointed. And then that leads right into being called or chosen or elected and then justified, declared righteous, saved, and then glorified, set apart. So now you have a better understanding maybe of where we're coming from, talking about the sovereignty of God, how it works. And you might still be thinking, which I would understand, why does it have to be this way? Why couldn't it be another way? I'm going to give you one reason why, and we already mentioned it, talking about our inability as the reaction to the preaching that you heard here. Our inability means that you can't repent and believe without God acting as the first decisive force in salvation. Go back to Ephesians 2. Remember I gave you the first three verses about how we're spiritually dead? Look how it follows. Ephesians 2 verse 4. Oh, you got to love these two words. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, there's foreknowledge, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If I was playing basketball, we'd call that a slam dunk. If there's any question, because you have it very clearly, you're dead. And then, but God is the one that makes you alive. Can't be more clear. And that goes to the second reason for God's sovereignty over salvation. It's his glory, not ours. 
If salvation were something that we were big time involved in, something that we did by our works or by something inherent with us, what would we do? We'd brag about it. We'd boast about it. We'd take the credit for it. And that's not going to work because that's going to rob God of his glory. And he's not going to have that. And that's why the Lord knows our hearts. And that's why Ephesians 2 goes on in that very familiar text. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. Grace is a gift. It's favor. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Mark that. Faith and belief in Christ is not nullified, is not negated. It is part of what happens. We're talking about who initiates this. By grace you have been saved through faith. Why? This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. It has to be this way, people. Salvation must be this way because of who we are in our unredeemed state. God is going to be glorified, made much of. He's going to be worshipped and praised for his saving grace and mercy. I mean, the cross and the resurrection alone puts God and his heart on display in, listen, justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. I'm going to help you with this. Justice and mercy goes to the answer of the question, why are some people saved? Why are not others? Why me? Why not others? That comment comes up quite a bit, and including from skeptics of the faith or a, a person that I understand, struggles to get this doctrine. And they think that God somehow is unfair in choosing or electing some to salvation and not others. Or not everyone. Well, guess who anticipated that question? Paul in Romans 9. Go back there. Verse 14. Paul asks the rhetorical question that he knows people have already asked or he knows they must be thinking. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And follow up to election. He says, by no means. That's a strong by no means in Greek. And then he says, for he says to Moses, God, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not, listen. So then it, the it, is referring to salvation by divine sovereign grace. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So, by virtue of being free and sovereign with his grace, the Lord gets to put his mercy on display to the lost. This is really important for you to get this, folks. This is mind-revolutionary thought here. There is no injustice in God's sovereign grace. When it comes to redemption, when it comes to judgment, God is perfectly holy and just. How do we know that? Because either people like the unredeemed get what they deserve for their sin and rebellion to the Lord. That's the definition of justice. Or the redeemed get mercy from God's loving compassion, which means they don't get what they deserve. Are you with me? We invite people to come to Christ and all are welcome. Absolutely continue to do that because God is not coercing or forcing anyone to believe or not to believe. That is their own doing based on their own nature. 
which is in bondage to sin or in bondage to Christ, depending on your heart condition. So you cannot blame God for people's natural hostility towards him. That would be their fault, their responsibility. Everyone, including me, is guilty and deserves God's holy wrath on our sin. He would be perfectly just to leave everyone unsaved and condemned in their sin. Where do we get the idea that God owes us salvation? Where do we come up with that one? Not scripture, not by any long shot. God would be a just judge if he condemned everybody. Because everybody's a sinner. The wages of sin is But that's not God in total. God is a merciful, loving, gracious God who gives mercy to those whom he wills. Think of it this way. Ten murderers are on death row, and the governor of the state commutes their sentence of three of them, three out of the ten. He signs their pardon. Is that unjust to the other seven on death row? Is it? They committed the crime. They're on death row. Seven got what they deserve. Three didn't in that scenario. Of course not. Of course that's not unjust. You're either in one of two camps. You either get justice or you get mercy. It's one or the other. None get injustice. God's not unjust. He has mercy on many non-deserving sinners because he gives them, like us, eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand and trust in Christ. And in the Romans 9 passage, he illustrated that, by the way, with Pharaoh in the Exodus with the Jews. The Lord hardened his heart, but the Bible also says he hardened his own heart. That simply indicates this, if you ever wondered about that. All that means is God chose to leave Pharaoh as he naturally was stiff-necked in his sinful, unredeemed state. He was on death row already to do the Lord's will in bringing his people out of slavery. That's how the Lord, according to verse 23 of Romans 9, he makes known the riches of his glory for vessels or people of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. There's our text again, Acts 13. So God's display of mercy brings him the glory he deserves. So you've heard all this so far. What do you do with this? The first thing you do, if you've been made alive, repent and believe. We call people to repent and believe. There's no inconsistency there. Look at the middle of verse 48 of the text, toward the end of the text, right? Those who were appointed to eternal life believed. They had to believe. Amen. No problem there. The new nature, folks, leads to new faith. You've been appointed and born again. Yes, that's conversion. God did that first. And when he calls you, you answer. But in answering, you exercise your will. You choose to turn to God away from sin, and you trust in Christ by faith alone. And you're going to do that now because you now have the eyes to see Christ rather than the world and the flesh as your greatest treasure. You see? Divine sovereignty and human responsibility, although they can be tough to initially comprehend and reconcile, 
They're presented in Scripture side by side, as Charles Spurgeon said, as friends. Friends don't have to explain one another. It's a both and. Two equal truths. Paul affirmed this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2.13. Listen to how it works. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification, being set apart by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. There you have them both together in the same verse. You've been appointed to believe. You're called. You answer. You believe. There you have it. Because people get this. God's sovereignty doesn't make you a robot. It doesn't make you a puppet. That's a straw man. That's not what it is. That's not what the Bible teaches. Because the Bible teaches just what it teaches in Acts chapter 17 when Paul's at Mars Hill. He said, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus Christ. So the Lord commands, he gives a general order to everybody on this planet to believe in Jesus. Some will, some won't obey the gospel. And so before I give you kind of the three-part beauty and encouragement of all of this, this doctrine before we close, I want you to remember something. Most every Christian in the world knows that God is sovereign in salvation. Do you know that? You know that? Why I know that? Because it happens subconsciously by virtue of your prayers. If you're a believer of Jesus Christ, if you're a disciple, who do you pray to to have your loved one saved? Do you pray for your loved one to save themselves? Who are you praying to to make it happen? God. You're acknowledging the sovereignty of God every time you pray for someone to be saved. You're just not thinking of it that way. We intuitively know he is the source of salvation. He must be. That's why Hebrews says Christ is the author and the finisher of the faith. Which leads finally to the result of all of this, which is where we come in. Look at verse 49 of the text, Acts 13. Many were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So this is the other role we play in salvation, folks, and the increase of God's kingdom on earth. Christians are born again. They're appointed by the Lord to be saved. They believe, and then we proclaim the gospel. We are the means of which God uses to accomplish his ends of salvation. The Lord didn't need us, didn't have to use us, but he freely decided to use us as the vehicle by which people would be saved by showing and sharing Jesus Christ to the lost in our lives. We were talking about Romans 8, Romans 9. Paul seamlessly takes it into our role with the gospel in Romans 10. You got to love this flow. Verse 13, Paul writes, Listen, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, okay? You confess Jesus is Lord, believe he has been raised from the dead, you will be saved. Same chapter. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? We are equipping you to be sent. You are the sent ones. 
That's us. He's not talking about one particular preacher or pastor. He's talking about disciples, the church, are the sent ones to preach. That's the great commission mission of our faith, people. We make disciples beginning with evangelism by sharing your faith with a personal testimony as a witness to the world of what God has done in your life when Jesus saved you. Paul talked about that fact, right? When we were given this ministry by the Lord of reconciliation, it's what we do in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You know, we're new creations in Christ. We all, the old stuff has passed away. Everything has become new. It says there in that chapter, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You know, that's our job in evangelism. That's evangelism right there. What are we supposed to tell people? Please be reconciled to God. Make peace with God. Beg for his mercy. Please, I beg you. That's what Paul's saying. That's what we're to say. What we are doing in evangelism is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you got to remember, there's both bad news and good news in it. And the good news, which incorporates this doctrine, is this simple. J.I. Packer said it. God saves sinners. The greatest news in the history of the world is that God has made a way for sinners to be right with him and at peace with him. That's what we tell them. That starts with communicating to someone that they're lost and on the way to damnation if they refuse to beg God for mercy. And you do that most of the time by telling sinners they're in trouble if they remain as they are. You must use the law of God from the word of God to get them to understand that. You tell them they have to turn to God, that's repentance, and then they trust in Christ, which is faith. You have to go to the cross before you get the crown. So all of that said about the sovereignty of God and salvation, I want to give you three big takeaways about this, which I think is the most God-glorifying, man-humbling, soul-satisfying doctrine of all in the Bible. I would argue that. Here's the first thing the sovereignty of God over salvation brings you. Number one, comfort comfort. God works all things together for good, including cancer and COVID. He works all things together for good to those who love God and are the called elected according to his purpose. That's only that. That's the only thing that makes sense of all the evil pain and suffering in a world like ours ultimately. And a year like this one is that the God of the Bible, who's all powerful, all knowing, ever present, governs and rules over the affairs of mankind. Why? Why do I say that? Because you can say in your heart, life is hard. God is good and sovereign and Christ is coming again. And when he does, by the way, he's going to right all wrongs. He restores his creation. And because he loves and will always love his church, he died for his church. He'll always keep his, his bride and his promises to her. Romans, again, chapter 8, toward the end of the chapter. We've learned about all that he's done in the golden chain. And then it says this in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's who? Elect. 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding, that means praying for us. And that text goes on to say, nothing, no one can separate you from the love of God. Doesn't that comfort you today? It comforts me. And the second thing it does for me, make note of this, is confidence. It should give you confidence in your walk, in your faith. Again, I go back to John's gospel, chapter 6. Remember I gave you those phrases about the Lord draws, compels everyone to come to him that will, that he wills. Listen to the other part of that, the confidence. Verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 39, all that he has given me, I will raise it up on the last day, meaning the day of the resurrection. Listen, you have confidence if you're a Christian, you should, as you do your faith and fruit inspection of yourself, you, have, you should have eternal security. Assurance of salvation. The Bible teaches that because God is sovereign and having saved you, how's he going to lose you? He'll keep you. He'll never lose you as the book of Jude says. If you somehow could save yourself, look, if I were in charge of saving myself, I'd lose it. I'd blow it time and time again. But in Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. You can't. Your citizenship in the kingdom is guaranteed if you endure, you persevere in the faith to the end. And I know that because our Lord Jesus told us that. When he gave the great I am statement about being the good shepherd, he said in John chapter 10, verse 28, I give them, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You know, you've heard that old Baptist saying, once saved, always saved. Well, if you're saved, that's true. Once saved, always saved. If you're truly saved, you're truly saved. Nothing, no one can change that circumstance. So you look at your faith, your fruit, and your fortitude, your perseverance, endurance to the end. You meet that threefold test, you are golden, you are good. You go from moving from the cross to the crown. That gives me confidence. Lastly, number three, and we're done. Courage. Courage. We need courage in days like this today, don't we? The power of God is what saves. First Thessalonians chapter one, very quickly, verse four in the beginning of verse five. Paul writes, for we know, brothers, we were loved by God that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. There it is again. God chose you, saved you, gave you a new heart, a new nature. You were convicted in your conscience. You repented and you believed. Take courage in that. That that's how it works. And why do you take courage in that? Because you can pray, live, and give the word knowing the Lord's behind it. That's how you make disciples. What is one of our favorite sayings at Christ Community Church when it comes to evangelism? Because we believe in the sovereignty of God. So, and sleep. Folks, I give the gospel every time I preach 
And I don't worry about whether anyone's going to get saved or not. I want people to get saved. I pray they get saved. Do I get worried about it? No. Why? Because I save no one. No one. And you don't either. You're, you are responsible to share the message. Sow the seed. Love on people. Get out of the way and watch God do his thing. That's how it works. That's how the kingdom spreads. And knowing that he has your back and he's ever present, you can take chances for the kingdom and the gospel because ultimately you'll never fail. We have the hope of glory and the hope of heaven. Amen. So as I close, I'll give you the picture of one more person that remembered all of this, knew it very well, particularly courage and confidence. And that's Joseph. Joseph in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. Remember toward the end there, his brothers are before him. And they sold him into slavery. They've treated him bad. Joseph has suffered quite a bit, been jailed unjustly more than a decade. And they are reconciling. They figured out Joseph is the governor after they are coming there begging for food. And all of that is the, the, the begs the question, are they going to reconcile after all they put Joseph through? So the brothers are nervous. They start to bow down before him as servants, just as he had dreamed when he was young that they would do. What is Joseph's reaction? Genesis chapter 50. I just read it, verses 19 and 20 speaks for itself. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive or saved as they are today. God sovereignly made sure Joseph went through all of that so that the nation of Israel would be saved, born, and emerge from the Exodus. Is that not mind-blowing? What this doctrine should do, we sang it tonight, amazing grace is that we should just bow down our knees and just give praise and awe and glory to the Lord. We couldn't figure out this, this deal. And some people have pushed me on this issue and we go back and forth and, you know, I get that. And you know what I say after a while, when in doubt, give God the credit. Would you ever go wrong doing that? Is that ever a bad thing to do? I think not. Or what Deuteronomy 29 says, the Bible tells me the secret things belong to God. Everything else he's revealed to us, and we know that. As Paul and the prophets said, he's the potter, we're the clay. I don't know about you, I'm okay being clay. Okay? I'm okay with that. I acknowledge it. I'm perfectly good with that. Let's close with a word of prayer, shall we? Lord, I just, again, I stand in awe of your majesty, of your sovereignty, your providence. In everything in life, including salvation, you've left no stone unturned. I mean, you count every hair on our head, and the sparrows don't fall from the sky apart from you. 
You're indescribable, as the song says. Unfathomable. And I'm glad I wouldn't have it any other way. I thank you for being one of the unworthy sinners that you foreknew, predestined, and chose, appointed to believe, and that you gave me the faith to repent and believe. I'm glad you've done that for the brothers and sisters in our church family and our community of faith. Lord God, and I, before I close with a scripture of prayer, I pray that someone out there who's been listening, even though this is not a text of scripture for just anyone, the doctrine we've talked about tonight is really for the church to give us comfort, courage, and confidence, particularly in times like these. Lord, I hope people know, the unredeemed know, justice is coming their way if they stay the way they are. Leave aside for a minute what God is doing in the background and do what Acts 17 in the Bible has commanded you to do. Repent and believe. Acknowledge, confess you are a sinner worthy of justice and beg for God's mercy. Turn to him. Trust in Jesus alone, by your faith alone, as the one that died to pay the penalty of your sins so that you would be forgiven, so that you would have an abundant, joyful life, soul-satisfying life now, and then eternal life forevermore. I pray those that are listening will do that tonight, Lord God. Lord, the depths of your riches and wisdom, how unsearchable are your judgments, how inscrutable are your ways. Who has known your mind? Who has been your counselor? No one. For from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be glory forever and ever. And God's people said, amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 